Coolia.ma is a multi-award winning marketing automation and personalization platform that improves your client acquisition, conversion and retention rates. Coolia makes your agency more efficient through automating your comms and prospecting activity and provides you with a wealth of additional chargeable client services. To find out more, head over to coolia.ma. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Doug Kessler. He is the creative director and co-founder of Velocity Partners, which is just an enormously successful B2B technology marketing agency. You probably know them from their viral content crap, insane honesty and stakeholder through the heart, which combined have just racked up just millions of shares and has helped to build the brand of a agency, which is really the envy of most other B2B marketing agencies out there today. I asked him how they did it, and he was just extremely humble, saying that it was luck and right place and right time, but you don't get lucky three or four times in a row. Um, they've just got a track record of doing this stuff time and time again. We discuss everything from uh, what it was like working in, in Ogilvy in the 80s at the start of his career, just as the Mad Men era was coming to an end. Uh, he actually met David Ogilvy. Um, uh, his creative influences and how B2B brands can cut through the noise today in today's sort of noisy, attention-divided world. He's got great advice for entrepreneurs thinking about selling their agency as well as he went through uh, the process with Next15 a couple of years ago. If you are remotely interested in anything to do with B2B marketing, technology, brand building, you will find this conversation to be just absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Doug Kessler. Doug Kessler is the co-founder of Velocity Partners. They are a multi-award winning B2B tech marketing agency who help their clients develop compelling stories, then drive these stories into the marketplace. Their content, including crap and insane honesty, has gone truly viral and has been shared millions of times, gaining them international recognition in the process. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Doug Kessler, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Look forward to it, Nathan. Me too. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for ages now. You've got a fascinating background. You get your BA in psychology from Cornell University, uh, and then you started your career at Ogilvy and Mather in 1986. What first attracted you to the world of media and marketing? Oh, it's weird. I mean, I was a bizarrely geeky kid who really was attracted to advertising. Even as a kid, hmm. I would I was fascinated by, you know, it was just, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. It was some great ads, but also horrible ones. And I loved the horrible ones just as much. Right. I remember junior high, I did a paper on the use of water imagery in menthol cigarette advertising. <laughs> and um, I just really got into it and I geeked out. So it's it's bizarre that I was always interested in it. And, um, interesting. and it was a natural place to go. Huh. Your, your father was a copywriter. What impact did that have on your choice of career? Well, it's weird because he, he was a copywriter and a good one, but he wasn't a happy one. So <laughs> okay. he, he didn't share his work life with us much at oh, all. I see. And that's a shame, really, because, well, it's a shame because he didn't let himself be happy at it, sure. but also that he didn't share it. So in that way, it wasn't an inspiration, but in other ways it was because he really valued words. And like we had a caption contest on the fridge growing up mm -hmm. and me and my brothers would compete for the prize for the best caption. And so there was always this kind of uh, value on being articulate and funny. Mm -hmm. and, and so that had a huge impact on me. I think, you know, caption contest is almost like the closest thing to what I actually do for a living. Sure, sure, and, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So at, at Ogilvy, you worked on some B2C campaigns, you worked with some fabric softener brands, and you say yeah. that you had some discomfort with the way that B2C used emotion to sell products. Explain that. Yeah, I just felt at the time, it was new in my career, and I just felt it was kind of manipulative, and mm. I didn't feel comfortable, and I wasn't sure why. I mean, 
like with fabric softener, the strategy was essentially be a good mother, use this mm. fabric softener. And at the time, I just thought, really, you know, this is something women are already feeling insecure about. Mm-hmm. You're going to use that to sell this this kind of unnecessary product. I just I didn't like it. And mm. so that made me uncomfortable. I liked a more rational approach, really. I mean, you know, I've I've learned a lot more about emotion and advertising and maybe where that came from. Maybe I wouldn't have had the same response. But at the time, I just felt not great about B2C. Makes makes sense. And I guess that sort of opened the door to the B2B world, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment. But also at Ogilvy, you worked on the Dove account where you, you weren't allowed to call it soap, which was, was really interesting. You had to refer to it as the beauty bar. That's I, right. It's funny. I was joined the account and they said, whatever you do, don't call it soap. It's a beauty bar. And I thought they were kidding. Like, you know, you make jokes and you make someone a new, the new guy right. say stupid things. <laughs> so I said soap in meetings and they would pull me up on it. And it's like, I finally realized they were dead serious. You're not allowed to call it soap. <laughs> And that's that's kind of like a typical little kernel of the the wankiness of B2C yeah. that I found difficult. Yeah, yeah. But but I guess it, it, they're staying true to their brand, right? Because in some ways, in many ways, I guess it's not really a soap, even though, okay, yeah. it does all of the things that soap does. Right, right, right. Um, but it's kind of, kind of, it's, for me, it sort of sits outside of soap a little, in, in a well, weird sort of true. way. Well, it isn't. It really isn't soap. Like soap is lie and fat. And this okay. is this weird. Um, I actually remember what it is. It's called defi, d- directly esterified fatty isethionate. Believe it or not, all these years, I've never said that. But <laughs> rolls off the tongue. Stuff, yeah, it was this stuff that was invented in, I think, World War One for burn victims because it's pH neutral. So it actually ah, wasn't soap. Okay. And, and now that you know that, you think, well, don't call it well, soap. Well, don't call it soap. <laughs> not a difference. But when I left the account, I just like, yeah. look, wash your face with it. You wash your hands with it. It's soap. <laughs> it's soap. <laughs> really interesting. Okay. So so from Ogilvy, you went to Andersen and Lemp. I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. that correctly. Uh, yeah. Before moving to the UK and becoming a copywriter, you then got married and had a couple of kids. Tell us the story of how Velocity Partners came to be. Okay, so yeah, I was a freelance writer and kind of evolving into being a consultant because the briefs I was getting as a writer weren't very good briefs. And I was trying to help people hone the briefs and started realizing, wow, what I am now is kind of a marketing consultant. Hmm. And working on one was an exhibition client who did a whole bunch of different trade shows run by a brilliant guy called Andy Center, sadly just passed away. He was just a terrific go for it all out marketer and, Mm. and let us do some great work. And I met on that account, um, the head of a PR agency called Stan Woods. Stan Woods, I was the head of an agency called Broder. Mm -hmm. So mutual client introduced us. He had sold to Omnicom. He was finishing his earnout, and he was recruiting me to start a tech um, consultancy, kind of an early stage tech company Hmm. thing. And in the end, we had a pint, and I was telling him why I probably wouldn't do it. And he realized I was having more fun than he was. And when (laughs) earnout was done, joined, you know, we joined together to Hmm. do to do briefs for early stage tech companies. And so the birth of Velocity was about 50, 60, maybe even 70 one-off positioning projects for early stage VC-backed tech companies. Right, I see. Okay. Any of those companies that we know today that have gone on to be, I don't know, Uber or no, Airbnb? No, a lot got bought. So, you know, the, the good thing were the, were the exits. And, yeah. you know, there were the superstars in a, we'd go to a VC and say, this is what we do. And they, and they really liked the offer because they had, they had, they had kind of dogs in their portfolio. They had middle ones that had potential and these mm. superstars, they didn't really need us for either end, but in the middle, it's like, these companies could be really good, but they need to tell their story better. And so it was a wonderful way of saying, look, our job here is to distill their story. And so to show that they've yeah. got a compelling offer to this this market. Right. And, um, you know, so a lot of them ended up being bought as opposed to going Uber size. I see. So I guess sort of Stan Woods brought he had the tech background. You had more of a consumer background from your work with Ogilvy. How comfortable were you making that transition from sort of, yeah, consumer fabric softener brands and soaps to talking about technology? 
I really liked it. And I, I had moved into B2B more even before Stan and I got together. Right. I like building an argument. I like a rational, hey, there, there are really good reasons that you should consider this thing and switch to this thing. And so I like it. I feel like it's my home turf, even though there's challenges in just understanding the tech mm. or in empathizing with the target audience, like really knowing what a data center manager faces every day. Mm-hmm. You know, consumer stuff, we're all pretty close to the consumer. We often are the target audience. So, it, you know, that part's harder. But I just do. I found that it's much more a natural place for me. Really interesting. I, I spoke to Rory Sutherland this week. I'm just I'm just name dropping uh, just just there. But uh, but obviously he's he's written you know, a fantastic book recently, um, Alchemy, uh, the, you know, the science of why we make the decisions we make, really focused on emotional marketing and sort of how we use, how we're far more emotional than we are rational. And actually there's an underlying reason why we do the things that we do. So going back to your point about B2B being quite rational, even on the, even on the surface, I guess we think that it's rational, but are we driven more by emotion than, than what we give it, give it credit for? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes um, maybe a word I use more than emotional might be irrational, just the things that aren't or non-rational. There's something going on there that isn't purely and emotional is a fine word for it, too. And I think it's absolutely true. And in a way, when I look back at that fabric softener experience that I that I felt bad about. The fabric software company, P&G, didn't invent this strategy. Women told them that. One thing they liked about the product was it was a little extra thing they could do for their family. Like it was optional. You don't have to put fabric softener on and it had a fragrance. So when their family smelled, it's like, oh, this is, you know, mom's laundry type Mm. thing. So that was women telling them that there's a meaning beyond Mm. the performance of this product. They were feeding that back, really. Um, So I think it may have been less manipulation than mirroring. And and the same is true of B2B. And there are studies that show you know, the emotional side is even more important in sure. bidding big things to a, to let's say your software vendor. So yeah, I, I think it's underdone in B2B and a huge, huge force. It should Def- be more. Def- mm, definitely. Cause I guess, you know, in B2B the, there's so much more riding on the decision. If it goes wrong, there are careers on the line, there are budgets, there are. So there's, it's so much more emotional in many ways, even though we have this sort of veneer of sort of, of, of rationality, I guess we, post-rationalize the decision with facts and and data which is absolutely yeah i mean the great b2b brands are people love the company and then they'll even twist themselves into pretzels to rationalize that choice even if it isn't their best sure so it's you know people underplay brand at their peril really interesting let's talk a little bit about velocity partners uh most people have probably heard of you from your fantastic viral content that you created around 2015, 2016, um, crap and uh, insane honesty. I'm sure it must be weird to sort of Google Velocity Partners and crap <laughs> in the same <laughs> sentence. Um, so tell us about, I mean, it's rare to have a B2B agency or a B2B brand that creates truly viable content. How did you guys do that? Well, I mean, I'd like to say it was strategic and all planned out it was and it was a big piece of luck and it was you know a few things where we decided to be our own best client to do content the way we wanted to do it for clients and kind of target our kind of marketer not just Mm. all marketers and so we figured let's just be ourselves in public you know Mm. and that made a big difference and it helps that that we are the target audience. You know, we're talking to B2B marketers. We are B2B marketers. And so we're in the world. We're steeped in the same things our audience is steeped in. That really helps a lot. So, you know, we can simply, we can think, what are we most worried about now? What are we most concerned about now or interested in? And then just really be honest about it in public, be ourselves in public. And for the ones that went big, it was about, you know, a timely issue and a little bit of attitude and fun and energy um, combined to to kind of hit a nerve somewhere. And it, it was it was more luck than design. Hmm. So how did you respond when you saw the numbers increase? I mean, how many how many shares or downloads have those campaigns gotten, by the way, just to give everyone a sort of a picture? How far? Yeah, crap broke 5.5 million, I think. Wow. And one another one called the search for meaning in B2B is right up there with it. So some really? of the 5 million range, Amazing. which for, for B2B is a, is viral. It's not kind of, you know, um, Caitlyn Jenner vibe. <laughs> viral. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. No, sure. So, so, and I guess that's had a huge impact on uh, on the perception of the brand. It, it's, I'm sure, it's drawn. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a huge advantage from a business development perspective and your visibility in the market. How did that? How has it impacted positively the uh, the agency? You know, it's had a huge impact, and it's really it's changed our agency. And one of the biggest is that it attracts like-minded marketers. Mm. So it's this kind of, you know, again, we dignified in retrospect as strategic by calling it psychographic targeting. Mm. It's, you know, we do our best work with people who have the same idea about what good marketing is, mm. confident, ambitious marketers who want to do something great. And so it's been a filter more than a magnet. And the filter has been wonderful for our company because we, we get to do what we're good at and and work with people who have the same idea of what good marketing is. That makes a huge difference. I mean, I've worked sure. in agencies where you, that, that match may not be so great. You might be a little out of sync and everything's harder. Everything's less fun, harder to keep good people um, and do good work. So once you get on the virtuous side of that cycle, um, it all it all changes. So I think that's been a big part of it for us. Really interesting. So through your content through the tone and and the irreverent nature and the playfulness of your content you're able to attract like-minded clients who think like you who think in the same sort of way and that want the same approach to their own marketing um which is which is really interesting so and again you guys have a really unique voice in the marketplace as i mentioned you're irreverent you're playful you don't take yourselves too seriously you laugh at conventional tropes of marketing is that was that a an organic thing? Was that quite strategic, or is, I guess that's just who you are? You're being yourselves in in public. I think that is a factor of being ourselves in public because we're always just a little bit, um, um, you know, embarrassed by the marketing tropes because marketing has sucked for for our whole lives. Marketing has not been good. It's mm. kind of insulted the intelligence of the audience, and so there's this sense of you know, making fun of it is just a natural thing and, and trying to expose you, you kind of forget when you're a marketer that some of the silliness of our profession and even just the language or the, the little attitudes everyone's used to. And so to expose those to realize that they're silly is a lot of fun. And that's become part of our voice. Mm. Like what are the examples that mark, what are the things that marketers take too seriously? Well, I mean, they take themselves too seriously for sure. But I mean, it's all sometimes it's just like micro copy, little stuff mm. like when you sign up for an email newsletter, it'll mm. say, thank you so much for signing up. We promise not to abuse you of this. Or this mm. you know, all of that kind of simpering language. And ours just says, ha, now we have your data. We're going <laughs> to gotcha, bastard. You know, <laughs> it's just an example of having fun at the expense of a, of a kind of a cliche interaction. Sure, you know? sure. I also love your voicemail when you when you call Velocity Partners. I think it's press one to speak to, you know, if you want to work with us, press two, if you want to speak to operations, press three for the office dog, press four for, and yeah, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's very, again, it's very different. Yeah. I didn't even know that, you know, I oh, really right. didn't know. We had, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> really I'm glad you heard because I, I have a feeling it's kind of suffused the place, like, or it been infused in the place where people mm. use velocity voice in, in weird places like mm. that. So I'm glad to hear that. I hadn't even, I haven't called us in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I called a tech company the other day. I can't remember where they were. They're somewhere in, in the Nordics, but the answer machine was, sorry, we're not in at the moment. We're out saving the world from the bad guys. Uh, <laughs> leave, leave your I, number here. I thought I, that was fantastic. I told everybody my WhatsApp. Um, and now they've, now all my friends are going to call this, this Swedish technology company to hear, <laughs> hear the voicemail. Um, so in 2009, 2010, we start seeing the emergence of marketing automation and the rise of content marketing. You guys really caught the crest of that wave. Luck or strategy? Again, luck. I'll call it strategy in retrospect. We, <laughs> we were, I think we were content people before it was called that. I mean, we, we preferred, you know, capturing the expertise of a company to help someone do their job. And, and then we realized this thing's growing and it's called content marketing. And we're like, we're in, you know, that's just the kind of marketing we want to do. And so we were early into it and that, and then it became, uh, we didn't know it'd become this big surging wave. So we did ride that wave and that's, that's luck of timing. Um, yeah, I think it was, it felt right for us, but 
it wasn't like a wild guess or anything. But uh, on the other hand, who knew it would become the thing it became, like it would take sure. over and eat marketing. Sure, definitely. And it, I guess it's it's come to sort of define really a generation of marketers. And I, I guess it spawned brands like HubSpot and Marketo and Eloqua and all those sorts of brands that sort of use content marketing as, um, uh, you know, to fuel the, the brand of, of, of their software. Um, I spoke with uh, Brent Adamson from Gartner recently, um, Challenger Sale and Challenger Customer, and he said that content marketing, we've almost become our own worst enemy now because all content marketing is generally pretty good. It's backed by data, it's well-researched, it's empirical. So if you've got two different brands and they're targeting a decision maker with their content, generally the content from both companies is generally pretty good, even though they have a competing argument. Um, so the decision maker is almost at a loss. They're, you know, he's saying to himself, well, I believe this company over here because their content is great. It's backed by data. It's empirical and well-researched. Mm. I also believe this content, this company over here, because theirs is the same, but they're saying two slightly different things. So have we become our own worst enemy by creating all this content, this thought leadership? Yeah, I think in some ways, yes, we've certainly made it harder. I mean, content marketing doesn't confer advantage anymore. In the beginning, it conferred advantage. If you were the first to do it in your market, that was a big deal. It's almost mm. like if you were the first one to do a website. That Now it seems mm. silly to think a website would be an advantage. It isn't. Mm. It's a price of entry. What is an advantage is a great website or great content. So now the game is different. It's not just do it and do it well. And I think you're right. I think that the level is higher than the crap I worried about in the, <laughs> the piece. It's more like a mediocre professional, you know, good but meh is sure. the standard. Yeah. And so now it's all right, how do we leap out of that? We can't we can't just make good stuff. We've got to make stuff that's known for being smart and special and charming mm. and fun to read and, you know, um, helpful all of those things. So it's it's just the price of entry to do it. Now mm. it's great. Yeah. Mm. So where, where would you say content marketing is now? How would you characterize where we are? Well, content marketing for B2B, it's kind of dissolved into marketing. It just is marketing. Sure. It's mainstream. I can't imagine content-free marketing. Um, so there's that. And I think in, the, in some way, we've, we're off of the super fun part, which was the learning curve when a whole industry goes through learning together. Of course, we're all still learning in a million ways. But the central idea of it, a lot of people have got and now it's about, you know, the market is industrializing and operationalizing content marketing, which, of course, one needs to do to scale up and everything, but can kill it as well, can deaden the the energy of it, the spirit of it, the fun of it. And I fear that that's what we're into right now. Um, is this time when, you know, we've become, it's almost like becoming more like, I don't want to say PR because PR could be great and bad, but like mm. mediocre PR, it's just, mm. it's a machine that turns mm. and it's thing, but doesn't actually delight anybody. Really, really interesting. Who, how, how did the best B2B brands that you've come across, maybe, maybe that you've worked on, maybe that you haven't worked on, how do they differentiate themselves in a crowded marketplace today when there's so much content or, or our attention is in a million different places? What are the best B2B brands doing to differentiate themselves today? Well, a big part of it is the word brand right there, that the best B2B brands care mm. about brand and build a brand, whereas mm. so many actually don't. They... But that's a big thing. It's just to, to recognize that brand's important and it's worth creating one and making it memorable and distinctive. You know, that's the big first step is the great brands are the ones who bother to build a brand. Mm. And and then as part of that, of course, I, I believe voice is a huge part of it and that our favorite brands have distinctive voices and know how to use voice. So those are two of the big the big things for B2B. Mm. Care about brand all and then get some attitude and energy and what we call mojo into it yeah sure makes makes a lot of sense so uh u.s china trade war on at the moment uh brexit uncertainty some clients are probably waiting to see what happens before spending any more money or investing in marketing uh what are your clients seeing and how is velocity partners uh protecting itself at the moment you know we aren't, we're just either we're negligent or we're fatigued. And <laughs> so I'm, my attitude is kind of like, let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fair <laughs> enough. It. 
because like it just seems crazy to try mm-hmm. to anticipate anything and especially mm-hmm. if you're going to use reason what ought to happen that ain't going to work so to be honest we don't have contingency plans or backup plans we're mm-hmm. just going to be reactive i know i'm probably um not doing a service to some of the people like our head of ops has been on some brexit meetings to sure. give, keep an eye on people's visas and stuff so there is that sure. other than the people side no we're just seeing we're just waiting to see where the chips fall interesting have you seen clients sort of slow down or maybe pull back or maybe not invest as heavily as they'd want to in recent times i haven't really seen that no. i mean okay. it hasn't hit yet that, mm. that there's a kind of um brexit um reluctance and probably because people are still going to have to market in whatever world sure. there is. so so far not mm. Really interesting. So you're clearly the face of Velocity Partners. I've seen you speak many times. Um, Was that an intentional decision to make you the face of the company? Because you seem quite comfortable doing it. Did you always feel that way? No, I I didn't. And in fact, I don't. I'm not particularly comfortable doing it. Really? I think, yeah, it's it's something I had to force myself to do and get comfortable with. I'm a I guess I'd call myself a non-practicing introvert, you know, <laughs> I, I'm naturally very much an introvert, but mm. the job kind of demands that I not be as much of one as I'd like to be. I see. So, I mean, it really, it kind of happened and it, for the writing led to speaking opportunities and, you know, I do like it. I like going to events and seeing other people and seeing what's up in the market and connecting with an audience. If I've got something I really believe in, those are nice feelings, but I struggle with the performance side mm. of, of that. Um, it's not my natural place. Really? Even to today? Yeah. I mean, I've learned that I, I've changed my goal from being a great speaker and one of these wonderful, wonderful, captivating speakers to just trying to be myself on stage mm-hmm. as my best, best, most likely um, uh, goal. And mm-hmm. so with that goal, I've got better and I feel like I can be myself on stage if I work hard to prepare mm. and, and know my stuff and believe in my stuff, then then I can enjoy it and have fun. But and and again it's it's being comfortable and being myself as opposed mm. to wow, some of the speakers I see where you just leave and think that was just so captivating. Sure. You know, I'm not aiming for that. Well you've you've achieved it because I, I feel the same way when I leave uh, hearing you speak. So uh, yeah, you've 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 definitely done that. Was that was that important to the brand of Losty Partners to have someone be the, the face of the brand? Because there are, there are many agencies, well, there are some agencies that don't have a public face or a public figure uh, as the front of the brand. But then there are other agencies that, that do have this individual, this charismatic individual that sort of, uh, you know, the brand and the, you know, the agency and the individual are sort of inseparable in, in some way, shape or form. Do you feel that's important um, to be able to sort of build a company. I mean, go back to Amazon, maybe, you know, some tech companies, obviously uh, Jeff Bezos is the, is the face of Amazon. You sort of, they're synonymous, uh, Richard Branson and Virgin, yeah. Steve Jobs and Apple. Do you think that's important for agencies to have that kind of public figure? Yeah, I think it can be an asset, but to say that doesn't mean that if you don't, like you can't compete or anything. I think it, you do have to be yourself. I think if someone isn't up for that role or, or mm. good at it or want it, then you shouldn't fake it because you see a lot of people try that and they trot people out to be, and, and, it, and you know, it's not their natural place. And so when it happens, like David Ogilvie for Ogilvie and Mather, the, mm. the agency is still how many years later and through being bought, there is still the long shadow of David Ogilvie throughout mm. that sure. picture of Ogilvie is from him. And so when you've got it, it's a huge thing and wonderful. Um, but I don't think it's a kind of thing where if it's not a natural outcome that you should necessarily force it. Hmm. What was it like, just, just on Ogilvy, what was it like working in Ogilvy at that time? I guess because there were, would you, would you argue that that was just after their heyday or sort of how would you characterize when you entered the company? Yeah. What so kind I, of culture? It, yeah, so I entered in the 80s. He had retired not too long before. In fact, he came back and talked to our training program. He wasn't a very nice man, to be honest. No? No, he wasn't. A brilliant man, but not particularly nice. And he, um, 
so it was it was post David in that way, but very much still him and his values and culture. And, you know, every every office all over the world had a red carpet, probably still does red carpeting in his picture. And, you know, it was a bit cult like in that way. But and his writings were kind of the thing, like I was given three hardcover books when I joined. Um, and so the, there was a kind of a, you know, a very, very strong culture. It was an exciting time, you know, it was booming the eighties. It was kind of the end of the Mad Men era, but there were still some of the old hard drinking guys mm. there and a fun, exciting time. And, and they were really big on both culture and they believed in not insulting the audience. Mm. And that's something I've carried with me a lot. It's, you know, they really worked hard to, to try to figure out and understand and not condescend to the consumer. And I learned a lot there and it was a fun and exciting time full of brilliant people. Mm. So what did you take from them? What did you leave behind? I mean, you took from them the fact that they didn't want to insult their audience. Mm. What, what did you leave behind? You mean, did I make an impact there? As in that you are now using in Velocity Partners, what what have you okay. taken with you from that experience? What have you left behind that you said, mm, actually, no, I'll, I think I'll leave yeah. that. I see, left behind in that sense, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there was a, it was so big that there's something about cultures when you get a certain size that I was happy to walk away from. Um, and I tried, tried to, you know, not let Velocity be that kind of culture because we're so much smaller, it's way, way easier. Hmm. So there were things about, kind of a Kool-Aid internal bullshit that hmm. that I tried not to bring along, like mm -hmm. just a, a, a more candid, down-to-earth, be-who-you-are mm -hmm. kind of thing that, mm -hmm. that I like, whereas I felt like in big companies you have to be a little bit of a cheerleader and put on a face. and um, So that was something I was happy to, to get away from. But there's plenty I learned about the craft of this business from a really good source. I still mm. really rate Ogilvy as this kind of, um, as a, a writer and thinker about this stuff. If you are at all interested in how the best marketing agencies win and keep new business, how the best agencies hire and retain world-class talent, and how many of them have doubled their revenues in under two years, you can find the answers to all of those questions and more with a subscription to the Agency Deal Masters magazine. Before Friday, the 6th of December, you can subscribe to the quarterly publication for only £95 a year. That's only £7.99 a month, a saving of 65% from the usual purchase price. You get four heavyweight issues a year, which condense the wisdom of some of the best marketing agency leaders into a digestible format, such as Doug Kessler. This offer is only available until the 6th of December, so head over to agencydealmasters.com today to subscribe. Agency Deal Masters, what great marketing agencies really do. Hmm. Really, really interesting. So as far as being sort of a, an entrepreneur, are, are you, are you, would you say that you're a natural entrepreneur um, or you're naturally entrepreneurial? Did you have to learn that skill set? Is it possible to learn or? Yeah. I'm sure it is. And I'm sure I'm not natural. There are very, very few things I'm natural at. I think um, writing is one I seem to have, you know, found a home in, but most other things I've had to beat myself into the shape that seemed required. <laughs> And that's true of entrepreneurship, too. I mean, really, I don't even own that name or title. I don't feel like it fits very well, even huh. though I suppose the evidence is, you know, that I, yeah. that I have won. So, no, all of this was about, oh, shit, I'm in a place that I don't understand. And I've always loved learning. That's maybe been one of the things that made it possible to morph a little bit and mm. keep learning. Mm. You've, you've, you've seen the business grow tremendously recently what, what have been some of the biggest takeaways from that growth and how have those lessons affected the way that you operate today yeah i mean the growth has been it's a huge challenge because it's exciting as hell but it's also a threat to who you are and your culture your processes can start to creak under the pressure or collapse um and people some some people get disenfranchised feeling it's gone too far too fast or going the wrong way and so there's all sorts of growing pains that are chronic and inescapable in growth that I, in the early days, I kind of overreacted to those. And I, you know, I, I, I suffered through growing pains more. Now I kind of feel like, you know what? Oh, that is, that's growing pains. That's what mm -hmm. we're going for now. Let's address those things calmly, still being confident that we're good, 
at what we do. We're a good company. We care about our people. You know, all the core values are still solid and that we can work on whatever we have to work on. Mm -hmm. Whereas early in the growth, it's like, oh, my God, our values are under attack and Mm. we're failing and we're being hypocrites and Mm. we're, you know, all sorts of angst that seems to have fallen away, you know, as as I get used to that curve. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about acquisitions. In 2017, you were acquired by Next15. What were the factors that led to that decision? Uh, a big one was de-risking. So Stan and I are both like, I'm 58, Stan's maybe a year or two older. And we just felt like we felt ourselves wanting to touch the brake pedal just when the market was asking for the gas pedal, you know? <laughs> And so that made us think maybe we can de-risk a little bit. We still have fire in the belly. We love this stuff. We love growing in this place. And it's still a lot of learning. But it felt like if we could de-risk a little bit and not feel like we're betting our retirement every time we Mm. decide to do something like open an office in New York, for instance, Mm. that would be great. And so there was that. There was also a sense of there might that there was a window of opportunity for our kind of business to sell and that we needed to at least be talking to people during that window. Whether we decided to sell or not, we needed to have some conversations. And early conversations, we we met Next15 fairly early in it all, really hit it off right away and knew quite quickly that they were the front runner and one we wanted to really progress with. So um, it happened as a, hey, let's explore this. And then it took off very fast under its own kind of speed. And for those that haven't been through that process, describe what it was like. You know what? It was really fun and Mm. exciting. And I didn't expect that. And everyone told me that, you know, the due diligence is going to suck and they're going to have floorboards up and they're going to be, you know, (laughs) they're going to be in here and it's going to be tough and difficult and the negotiation will be nasty and horrible. And none of that was true. There's rigor there, but... First of all, we got really good advisors and advice. We work with SI partners who I recommend. I know you've interviewed yep. Joe Hyatt, who's brilliant. Quite a few and I would recommend them. And other advisors, legal and our mm-hmm. own kind of non-exec uh, chairman type, who's a super business person. Mm-hmm. And so what we found, SI's advice was, don't go bidding war. Don't go trying to get maximum price with bidding wars. Buyers hate them and they don't tend to work. And if it happens, you know, sometimes they're fine. But... Find someone you really want to work with and progress, focus on them. And that was really good advice. I liked hearing that. And we did that with Next15. And once you're doing that, I found like the, the process was essentially a mutual process of finding out what fair was hmm. and deciding and agreeing what fair was. Not can I win this? Can you win that? Can, right. you know, it didn't feel so win-lose. It felt sure. more like, all right, what's fair here? What's fair there? Sure. And so it was a lot more fun and a lot less adversarial than I expected. Really interesting. Yeah, because I guess that's that's what we're told a lot of the time that, you know, get ready. They're going to come through with a fine tooth comb. It's going to be hard and it's going to be emotionally challenging. And I guess to a certain extent, because if you're selling your bait, we're not selling it. That's probably the wrong Mm. choice of words. But if you're selling um, Mm. something that you've built and invested so much time and effort into, there is a lot of emotion that, that sort of goes into that. So. Uh, yeah. it, it can be quite um, sort of uh, emotionally draining sort of going through that process. But it's, it sounds as, as though it was uh, it was a lovely experience for you. Well, not Maybe not lovely, but uh, it wasn't uh, as hard as, um, you know, other people make it make it sound. Right. It was fun. I mean, part of the thing is that we were going to continue the relationship. So mm-hmm. we weren't exiting and running. We weren't dumping a company on someone and getting out of sure. there. Uh, it was no this is an ongoing relationship so you want to find and you know keep and build a relationship there are other sales i'm sure which is more zero sum you know win lose kind of thing but this was you know we want to work together so Mm. you want to be collegial about it of course what so what value has the acquisition added to the uh, the business subsequently it's added a lot and i think the other, the value that the other agencies in the group have brought, and not just with services we can offer and expertise, which is nice, but just people who've gone through it and are going through the same things. That Nexfortine is a quite a special little thing. I think it's under the radar. There's no brand there. No one knows the group, but it's a group of very special agencies. I'm really, I guess I was a little arrogant, thinking, oh, I'm going to meet some, you know, a mixed bag here, and mm-hmm. we're going to be the coolest, smartest people in the room. Mm-hmm. No fucking way. <laughs> it's a very 
very smart group of super sharp, good agencies doing great work. And hmm. so all of a sudden we're like, wow, we have a peer group and we can compare notes. We have an issue. We can talk to other people. That's been enormous value. So there's a lot of things Next15 brings, but I think it's the, the other agencies in the group and that, that have brought the most to us. What advice would you give to an agency that's starting to think about doing a similar thing? I would say, um, you know, don't go in super greedy, but I think that the big thing is um, knowing why you're doing it. And I, I think the biggest piece of advice is get really good advisors you trust because you're going to, unless you've done many deals, Stan had done one before I'd done none. Unless you've done that, you're not going to know this is their area, not yours. Mm -hmm. Total trust and the sense that they're going to tell you and advise you well, help you understand the issues and their implications and all of your choices and, and what, what they mean. And we had that, I think, that's super, super important. I think find an advisor and the rest will take care of itself, I think. Really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about hiring. Um, how do you attract the best talent to Velocity Partners? So it's there is kind of a virtuous cycle of, of um, do great work, attract great clients, let you do great work, that attract great people, that attract, you know, so that goes up and up if you honor it. If you honor it by saying, we're not going to work with a client that we can't do good work for. We're not going to hire a person who is a prima donna or isn't pulling their weight or something like that. Um, you know, you honor the values and good people attract good people. So the, hmm. the great people we have, and we have, I think, I know everyone would say this, an awesome, awesome group of people. And it, they're there for each other. Hmm. And you kind of realize, wow, it's super important to maintain that standard. And that means sometimes, you know, firing fast, figuring out when someone isn't um, a right match for the role. And if you don't do that, you know, people, A people, A grade, if you're going to grade humans, I guess that's a bit awful, but mm -hmm. super talented, mm -hmm. switched on people who want to do great work, want the same in their colleagues, you know, that's what motivates them. So, you know, it's making sure that you keep your standards in hiring and that's a huge part of it. Hmm. So as you said, as you've said, if an employee isn't working out, it happens from time to time, you know, you've given someone a chance and it's not been working out. At what point do you decide to part company with that person and, and how do you go about doing it? Yeah, it's painful and it's awful. And it's usually, we have to admit, it's our mistake. You know, we mm -hmm. thought it'd be a good match and we were wrong. And so what sometimes happens is you kind of take it out on subconsciously, you blame the person and, and start liking them less when it's really your fault. And so mm -hmm. for me, kind candor, you know, honesty, but without meanness, like, you know, a mismatch is not someone's fault. It's they're not quite right for this role. Hmm. It does not mean they're a bad person. And, you know, they can be wonderful at many other things. So for us, being honest with ourselves, seeing it quickly, acting quickly, hmm. first to see if we're right and try to fix it. And then when your heart is telling you it isn't right and no amount of fix is going to work, just, just being honest and moving fast. Because I think in the past, you know, we're – kind people will always want to keep giving people more and more of a chance. Hmm. It's actually not that kind to do to somebody is to stretch out this, this sure. of stress and failure. So it's move faster is, hmm. is important. Really important. I mean, just going back to the talent attraction piece for a moment, you, you, you guys have got such a stellar uh, brand in the marketplace, an employer brand, I guess. And that's a factor maybe from the content that you've produced and the work that you've done. How much of a pull has that been in terms of attracting good quality candidates to you, um, having that strong employer brand? It's been great. It's been such a good thing. And yeah. we didn't really do it by design. Yeah. But, but it's just been, wow, people come and we say, well, what do you know about us? And the things they say make us really proud. Really? Like, wow. It's like they do know who we are and they they're attracted to what we are for the right reasons. Right. Just the client kind of filter magnet thing. They're here because they want to do this too. Sure. And so when values attract people, it's just such a better thing, you know. So it's been it's been a un, like a a side benefit we didn't mm -hmm. know about, and maybe mm -hmm. it's a time benefit, not side, but definitely do it to build an employer brand. Sure, I would say so. So I mean, you talk about 
values there do you I mean what are your values do you have them codified are they written down do you share them what's your approach to communicating them it's kind of because I guess basically I feel like values need to be lived not talked and Mm. so I've really been reluctant about writing down anything like that and we got a few fairly strong requests from people like come on we're growing fast people who are new they don't know what this is all about just just try to capture it and I thought well, I'm going to, I'll try, but I won't like it and I'm not going to show anybody. So I sat down to write and it wasn't so much, we are this, we are that, but what have we learned on the way and mm. trying to distill what makes this place special. I wrote a piece and I actually like it. And <laughs> well, I shared it with a few people and they like it and we're, we're about to make it go public, but it's been written for more than a year. It's probably oh, eight wow. to two years Okay, because I still have this diffidence about waving the values flag and I feel people here are adults they come to work for different reasons and I don't want to over specify Mm. and be paternalistic like we are this we are that this matters that matters people come for different things there are people who it's all about the work other people really want to change marketing and other people it's actually more interpersonal challenges so you know I don't want to lock that down we're we're adults here it's not a cult and so I, I want to leave room around that but I can't deny that the kind of people who do well here, you start to see similarities and that so that and there are values. There's just some basic kind of integrity, respect values that matter a lot to us. And we can see it when someone comes in, whether it's a client or an employee or a supplier who doesn't share those values. It's like a sore thumb. So it must be real. Hmm. Um, but like I said, I've been reluctant to codify it. And the piece will come out. We'll probably share it publicly. Hmm. Uh, we may do we'll see how it goes but so like i say it's not something that we've been Mm. big about putting on the walls Mm -hmm. sure sure so exercise so so what have been some of those things that you have learned over the years yeah i mean i think a respect for the audience is a really big thing Mm -hmm. and i think um marketing that doesn't suck is something that that motivates us here we've all been kind of steeped in bad stuff. And we just don't want to do that to other people. Mm. Um, there is a respect for colleagues and, um, you know, even now, as I say it, they start to distill into trite things. Now they're real, like it's real, but when you, as soon as you put it into little phrases, it doesn't feel so good, but we've learned a lot about what we've got wrong and when we're getting it wrong. And mm. I think one big thing is a big deep breath to be yourself in your work and in your life. And if you have to be someone else when you show up for work, that's not right. It takes too much energy and you're not likely to be good at it and enjoy it. So that's a, that's part of it. It's just, you know, maybe, maybe part of it is that we screw up a lot. So it's a no blame culture because Hmm. when the founders make more mistakes than anyone else, (laughs) be blamey, you know? So we're all okay with trying stuff and seeing what happens. Yeah, really interesting. Doug, final couple of questions before we get into our favorite questions towards the back end of the interview. Those are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Quick fire round, if you like. Recall your biggest managerial challenge. Tell us how you handled it and what did you learn that you would do differently next time? Yeah, I guess generally the big ones are when someone important is not working out and someone we really like. Mm and and who has given us commitment and <clears throat> energy and given themselves and loyalty and that's really hard and it's not fun at all and mm. so i guess what i've learned having had to do it a few times is you know faster honesty um yeah not lying to oneself and mm. i think attempts to be kind have often backfired so that's been tough. I think that's one of the harder things. It's true also of parting company with clients and hmm. when it's just not right and you start to see there's no future, there's no good work in our future together. We, we can't succeed with you for whatever reason. It's a mismatch. Hmm. That's going to be really tough because the client stuck their neck out to pick us. You know, sure. we're a natural choice for a lot of, so to pick us, they had to put their career sure. on. And now we're telling them we don't want to work with them anymore. That can be really, really difficult. And, and yet utterly necessary mm. when it is necessary. So you talk about clients. What, what changes have you seen in what clients now expect from agencies in recent years? 
Yeah, it's changed a whole lot, and it just keeps changing. And a lot has to do with the maturity of the organization on all the different fronts, brand and uh, demand gen maturity and all of that, and, um, you know, their tech stack and, you know, and where they are um, will, will, will make the impact on what they need from an agency and want from an agency. It varies a whole lot. There's no standard cookie-cutter thing. Mm -hmm. I think there's some old, you know, chestnutty type basics of, hey, what's your story? We call it a galvanizing story. Mm -hmm. What's the center of all this activity? And that's super important. I don't think that's going to go away. I don't think clients have always um, put it high on their priority list because there's so much else to learn, like building a demand gen machine or whatever. Um, but we try to bring that back to the table all the time, knowing that it will improve your demand gen machine and all other activities. So it is changing, and we're constantly asking that question. I think it's, it's you know, what are we here for? What's an agency for? And one perennial that I don't think will change is we bring a fresh perspective. So we haven't had the Kool-Aid. We've worked with a whole bunch of different tech clients. And so we'll bring that perspective to the table. And that's a very valuable thing. I think that will always be valuable. And what shape the services take will change a whole lot as they have. But that one thing, we're going to be, we're going to represent and advocate for your target audience. Mm -hmm. Come back at you if it's not credible or it's not um, believable or just confusing and not, you know, we're going to, we're going to like challenge that. So hmm. that perspective, I think is the core of it all. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. Doug, I, I know I've only got you for a few, a few more minutes, so let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, wow. Fail, fail, fail. Fail, failure is a sweet spot for <laughs> I just got to pick from many. There was one, my brother and I, my brother's a super talented editor, a very funny, funny writer and editor. Together we made a little, we thought, funny film about um, the advent of kind of science and data in marketing. Mm -hmm. And we used an old 50s or 40s black and white public service announcement and revoiced it with funny voices. And we just thought it was the funniest thing since sliced bread. Put it out there and it was like tumbleweed, absolute nothing. We even did like ego traps where we mentioned people in the film friends like mm. big people in the business and they mm. they didn't even share <laughs> oh god. god then you know it's bad so it was just awful it was like yeah. the walk of shame publicly and yeah that was humbling yeah really interesting so I, I guess you didn't take the same lessons into when you know when you were creating crap and insane honesty in that you didn't have the same high expectations you just yeah. said okay let's just put it out there and see what happens it was like that but we kind of hoped people would think it was funny i sure. still do but a lot of people didn't sure sure tell us about some of your early mentors mentorship uh who influenced the way you think about marketing the way you think about b2b marketing um yeah tell us about some of your early mentors okay well david ogilvy wasn't a personal mentor but he was certainly a big figure in how I started thinking about all this. Mm -hmm. There was a guy called Steve Trigg at the Swedish agency, Anderson Lemke, I think he's back in Sweden now, who was just a terrific B2B writer who I really learned a lot from. And, um, and you know, I, that was kind of my model for writing, straight, clean, human, you know, fun writing. Hmm. So that was a big one. Um, and the, the client I mentioned, Andy Center, it wasn't so much marketing lessons as go for it lessons, like give your whole self to your work kind of lessons. You know, I watched him and you realize that a leader in a company sets a ceiling on how much you can care about your work and you feel stupid if you care more than your boss. So you lower mm. your level if they mm. don't. Well, he mm. cared the most. And so everyone in the company would care as much as they could. And mm. I felt, wow, what a great thing. Mm. That was a big influence on me too. Mm. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk about books. This is my personally favorite question uh tell us about some of your favorite books what books influenced your personal life your your career your uh, marketing life uh yeah tell us about some of your favorite books okay so i mean you know i have favorite writers like nabokov and john updike and the great jews bellow and roth and people like that you know um, for writing Ann Beatty and Alice Monroe, New Yorker short, short stories, absolutely wonderful. Right. And I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I keep a lot of books going at, at once. Nonfiction, Stephen Pinker, I absolutely love. Yep. Enlightenment Now is Enlightenment latest. Now. It's just huge. So good and so encouraging. Yeah. I'm a 
parents. So I want to believe that the world's going to get better. Right. And so it's wonderfully optimistic without being fake Pollyanna. Yeah. I love that book. So I would He's been criticized it. quite a bit, actually, Stephen Pinker, for being too optimistic and too kind of... I don't know. Glass, glass is a bit too full with Stephen Pinker, but I want to believe it as well. Like, I totally agree. Well, it's like he knows that because his last book was The Better Angels of Our Natures mm -hmm. about how violence is increasing and he got mm -hmm. a ton of abuse there. So the Enlightenment Now book is full of pre-defenses against all those objections. And I think he does quite a good job. I don't think he's ignoring facts. He's doing data. And he's also saying, look, this isn't a default setting that the world's getting better. There's all, the whole point of the book is that enlightenment values need defending mm. and that we all have to get out and fight for them or they won't keep making the world better. Mm. And so I think he's misread a lot, um, but I, it made a big impact on me. It's a great book. Really interesting. Yeah. What else, what else have you read? What else is good? What else has influenced you? There's one called um, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and it's um, about the moral psychology of the right versus the left. And mm. America is so incredibly polarized and Britain's going that way that I, it depresses the hell out of me. And it was the first explanation where you realize, wow, there are different moral psychologies. Like sometimes you feel like you're on a different planet from the other side, whoever it is. And in a way you are morally and, but that there's common ground that, you know, he finds five different pillars and two of them are in common to both left and right. And, and you just, you realize like you understand more and you feel like there's something to build on to try to close that gap and try to minimize or minimize the um, polarization so i love that book the righteous mind by john hate h-a-i-d-t h-a-i-d-t what what's your approach to choosing books that you want to read well, you know, as I get older, I realize my reading time is starting, you know, I don't, there's like a finite number of books yeah. left. So I'm yeah. more careful than I used to be. I used to just read, 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 read. Yeah. Now I've got some favorite authors. I will read everything they do. Okay. Um, I will reread. Then I've got, I look for their recommendations if they're still alive. Sure. And they're, like George Saunders, I love and whatever he loves, I'll go and read. <laughs> um, a review that really convinces me, I'll give it a go. Um, other than that, it's hard to break into my reading list as an author because um, not that they care or want to, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I, I have a high bar. And so a new novelist, yeah. I really need someone I trust to tell me it's wonderful and, okay. and to go for it. You read more uh, non uh, uh, sort of fiction than nonfiction? What's your what's the it's split probably between? probably about 50-50 now. Okay. It goes up and down. I'll have a fiction binge and then I'll you know, go the other way. But I always okay. have one of each going at any time. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Whoops. Is oh. that me or you? Uh, it's not me. No me. one sorry. ever calls me. Right, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, last couple of questions because I, I know that you need to go. Amazon Prime or Netflix? Amazon Prime or Netflix? BBC iPlayer. Oh, interesting. Okay. Neither. <laughs> okay. What's, what's good that you've seen recently? Uh, Fleabag. Best so thing good. on TV for decades. So good. Did you watch it when it first came out or have you gone back subsequently now that she's Phoebe Waller? Both. I watched them when they were new, but I also have gone back and they okay. hold up. They're just genius. They're wonderful. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? I don't. I've declined disgracefully on both fronts. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sure that's not true. It is. <laughs> In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? I have removed self-flagellation, not entirely, but mostly. And I used to always beat myself up and lose sleep over so many things. And something along the way changed. I think it was just physically unable to keep that strategy. So I stopped doing that, and it feels so much better. <laughs> I just realized I'm giving myself a break, like I'm trying my best, mm. <laughs> and I'm letting a whole bunch of people down daily, mm. <laughs> I'm trying my best. And that's that realization has been really important for it's me. the most you can do. Yeah, really interesting. Final couple of questions. What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person that comes to you and says they want to get into B2B marketing? I'd say go for it. It's a fantastic career for a young person. It's full of smart, talented, energetic young people. It's a great, great career. And I would just say for anyone, like sometimes, especially in B2B, you get some young folks who don't quite allow themselves to give themselves 100% to it. They somehow feel like 
there's a worthier career like being a novelist or something out there for mm. them. And they're doing this in the meantime. And even if that is true, while you're doing it, go for it mm. and give yourself permission to just really go for it. Give your best and give 100% all the time and bring your whole self to your job. It makes a huge difference. It's just much more fun and, and you're way more likely to be successful, but it just makes your days better. Great answer. And my final question, Doug, what do you know about marketing today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Hmm, what do I wish I knew? You know what? It's about it's about the process, really, the stakeholders, the importance of aligning stakeholders and working at that. Most of my career, I thought my jobs have great ideas and everyone should get out of the way once I have one. You know, <laughs> Too much of my time is spent being disappointed that others didn't didn't see that. And I finally realized that this is not an obstacle to my job. This is my job. Sure. It is to get people on the same page so mm -hmm. that we all agree what good looks like. And mm -hmm. when they we all see it, we'll agree. And so I really, I think it's way too late in my career to, to have such a, re, uh, a revelation. Hmm. I should have had that day one. <laughs> the job is aligning people to, to want the same things and then go for it. Great answer. Doug, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Nate. We have been speaking with Doug Kessler. He's currently the co-founder and creative director at Velocity Partners. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 38 such conversations we've had with world-class marketing and sales leaders. Thank you for your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at agencydealmasters.com. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do the show without our very own deal masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Mariam Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters.